Good morning. My name is Art. I'm one of the elders here. Um, and really happy to be up here to open the word for you this morning. <clears throat> the magnitude of change in the book of Acts, as we've been studying it, is uh, massive in its impact. Uh, we go from the physical presence of Jesus to the spiritual presence of Jesus by his Holy Spirit. We go from apostolic timidity, they were scared to uh, incredible bravery. We move from the Jews to the Gentiles. We go from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. We move from uh, the church scattered because of persecution to the church sent out as missionaries. We go from one church to many churches. And we're going to see at the end of the book that we are going to move from an unfinished story in Acts 28 to a continuing story up even to today, June 10, 2018. And this morning, as we look at the book of Acts, we're going to look at Acts chapter 13. Uh, if you need a Bible, put your hand up. Uh, we'll have some guys get it to you. Um, 52 verses in this chapter. Uh, I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm going to read a lot of them. So um, follow on the screen or in your Bible. Hear the word of the Lord, loved ones. Now that we're in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Eventually, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and here's his sermon. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for, and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And the next Sabbath, almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. I want to take just a couple of minutes to fill in some details of this chapter using that map. Uh, that map. And I want to apologize. I, I lost my laser pointer, so I'm going to have to talk, talk you through this. Uh, Antioch, which is right below the word Syria, if you, if you can't see it very well. Antioch is, is the church that not only were the, the uh, believers were first called Christians, which we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago, but also the church now that sends out our first missionaries. This is the first missionary journey, and here's how this chapter unfolds. Barnabas and Saul and John leave Antioch, and they go down just a few miles to Seleucia there on the water, grab a boat, and head to the island of Cyprus down on the bottom of the screen, and they land at Salamis there on the right first. And in Salamis, they go into the synagogue, and they, and they preach the gospel. Eventually, they work their way around the island of Cyprus and come to Paphos on the other side. And at Paphos, they run into a, uh, a Jewish false prophet ma magician type guy who tries to stop Paul and Barnabas from going to visit a proconsul who has called Paul and Barnabas to come and share the gospel with them. Uh, God doesn't like what that guy is doing, so he is struck blind on, on the spot. Then they leave Paphos and catch another boat and head up to Perga, which is just to the uh, up left like this from the big word Pamphylia, if you can't see it. Uh, that's modern day Turkey. 
where John, who was with them, who is really John Mark, the author of the second gospel, where he decides to go back home from there. Now, we have no idea why Mark bailed, but he was young and maybe he was just homesick. Uh, maybe he was bothered by the whole Gentile thing. Um, this was radical stuff to go to the Gentiles. Or he didn't want to endure going on because to get up to, from Perga up to Antioch, just to the right above the big word Pisidia up there, that's Antioch of Pisidia, a diff different Antioch, they had to climb up and over mountains and a very rugged terrain to get to Antioch. It was 3,600 feet above sea level. So this is, this is a climb. Plus, the area was notorious all over the world for gangs of robbers who would stop at nothing to get what they wanted. Now, at Antioch, Paul did his normal thing by going to the synagogue first, where he would find both Jews, and then he would find also God-fearing Gentiles who had come along and kind of tagged on to the God of the Jews, but that's about all they knew. And remember Paul's goal now. It's not Gentiles instead of Jews, but it's Gentiles in addition to Jews. So that's why he's very interested in finding a place where he can find both of these people. And he was most likely recognized in the synagogue as a rabbi. And it was not unusual for the ruler of the synagogue to see someone like Paul and invite him as a visiting dignitary to come up and speak. And speak he did. This is the longest sermon we have from Paul in the book of Acts, but it's still probably only a summary of what he really said. Uh, Paul has never been accused of brevity, ever. If you remember the scriptures, he preached so long one night that a guy fell out the window. I mean, he, he just, on and on. And it's also very similar to uh, sermons in, in Acts 2 and Acts 7 by Peter and Stephen. So it seems like this is most likely sort of the... Uh, the form of the message that was preached in the early years about Jesus um, of, of the church. Uh, the very, sermons would vary depending on the person who is giving it, but it, it follows this kind of a, of a format. And the response to the sermon, of course, is what every person dreams of, every preacher dreams of, I mean. The people beg for more the next Sunday. <laughs> so afterwards... <laughs> Have you seen some of the, uh, the, the board in the front of, of, of some of the churches? Uh, you don't see it very much today, but they list the attendance and the giving for the week and then for the next week. Well, if, if they had a board there in this particular synagogue, the, for the first time, it'd be maybe 75 people. And for the next one, I mean, you'd see a number like 2,542 because we're told that, and it, it's hyperbole, but we're told the whole city came out to hear these guys again. But that sent the Jewish leaders into panic. And they caused enough of a ruckus that Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the district. That's not what every preacher dreams of. Uh, and as a result, they moved on to Iconium as a part of the first missionary journey. So that's the 30,000-foot view of what actually happened. But there's an, an easy-to-miss thread that weaves itself through the whole chapter, ties it all together, and gives it its real meaning and significance. And that's what I want to spend the rest of the morning talking about. The French king, uh, Louis XIV, called Louis the Great, uh, the guy that declared, I am the state, died in 1715 after reigning for 72 years. He left meticulous instructions about his lavish funeral uh, with his personal chaplain, the priest Jean-Baptiste Massillon, 
Fairly decent French, Matt. Pretty good. Uh, he was to lie in state in a golden casket at the Notre Dame Cathedral as his subjects paid respect to his greatness. For dramatic effect, the vast cathedral was, was to be lit by a lone candle which was set down on his casket, the only light. Um, as thousands waited in hushed silence, thousands, Father Massion carried out Louis' instructions to a T. But as he began his sermon, he added his own little touch. And he came out from behind the pulpit and he went down to the casket and he snuffed out the only candle and said, only God is great. That's the thread in this chapter and its ramifications, I, I believe, are as inclusive as every breath you and I take. I've entitled this message, The Greatness of God, Everything is His Story. And here's why I chose to pursue this thread. There are six or eight sermons in this chapter. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, but I chose it for a very personal reason. 24 years ago, I first read John Piper's book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching. It's only 100 pages. My preaching and teaching um, was changed forever. In that book, Piper wrote these words. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul, show me thy glory. Our people need to hear God entranced, entranced preaching. They need someone at least once a week to lift up his voice and magnify the supremacy of God. It is not the job of the Christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks about how to get along in the world. Someone else can do that. But most of our people have no one in the world to tell them week in and week out about the supreme beauty and majesty of God. Now, it's, it's not that we don't preach about those nitty-gritty and, and sometimes nasty practical things of life on this, on this fallen planet people, peopled by fallen humans. Marriage, finances, raising kids, you know, name all that practical stuff. But when we do, as we do regularly here, those subjects must be swept up into the presence of a great and a holy and a loving God. Only then can we deal with those topics with integrity. Because very simply, God is the only indispensable factor of life and history. Matt did, did this just beautifully last week when he couched prayer, not just in methods and techniques, which is not bad to do, by the way, but he couched it in who God is and what he does with our prayers. And I got to tell you, Matt, it was, it was really powerful. And I've heard a number of you this week say exactly the same thing. And that's what Matt and Steve and Mike and I try to do every Sunday morning. And by the way, we're somewhat selfish about it because we need that just as much as you do. To be called to that God every week. Because transformation is not about just behavior modification, giving you some tricks on how to live the spiritual life. It's about being engulfed by the splendor and the majesty and the grace and the love of God and then giving ourselves over to that God to be carried along by him as he works his desires 
for us into us. So walk with me through the greatness of God. Everything is his story in Acts chapter 13. I actually found 24 specific illustrations of that in this chapter. Now, I'm going to point out just 13 of them. So you may want to take on the challenge of finding the other 11. Verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. See, the church didn't, didn't vote to see who were the best guys uh, to go out on this first missionary journey. This is a big deal. This is the first missionary journey. God was the one who communicated them to them somehow that the mantle for that was to fall on Barnabas and Saul. And they weren't chosen because they said, you know, we've been thinking, we really believe that we're destined for this. Would you send us out, please, on this, on this trip? No, they went because the scriptures tell us that they were called by the Holy Spirit to go. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And we have no clue why he chose Israel. In fact, they were the most unlikely of all nations to be chosen by God to eventually bring us the Savior of the world. Why not the Egyptians? Why not the Babylonians? For reasons known only to him, he chose the Israelites. Verse 17. And he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. The Israelites didn't go from originally 70 people, Joseph and then his family came down, totaled 70 in Egypt, to two and a half million by Moses' time because of some extraordinary fertility gene. God produced this multiplication rate in spite of Pharaoh killing off a bunch of baby boys. Verse 17. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. See, it wasn't, as, as some scientists tried to, tried to show, it wasn't some weird natural phenomena that turned the Nile River to blood or that covered the land with frogs or put the Egyptians in pitch blackness for three solid days or caused locust swarms to clean out all of the vegetation overnight or gave them a dry riverbed through the middle of the Red Sea, you get the point. There were more and more and more of these things that God did. Verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with, literally, that probably should be carried them rather than put up with. Carried them in the wilderness. And did he carry them? They had miraculous manna. They had miraculous quail. They had miraculous water to drink. They had miraculous sandals. Their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years traipsing around this desert in this wilderness. And then it says, after destroying, God destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, they were a bunch of slaves. They had been slaves for 400 years. No way could they become an army overnight and overpower these nations in the land of Canaan who were accustomed to fighting century after century. God had to become an army of one for them. Think Jericho. Hey, march around it seven times, blow the trumpets, and the walls will come down. Really? And then verse 19 says, he gave them their land as an inheritance. 5,600 square miles originally. It got bigger than that. About, about like the state of New Jersey. They didn't earn it. They didn't buy it. They didn't conquer it by their might. They, they didn't deserve it. God gave it to them. 
Verse 20, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't look at the chaos in the land and say, we've got to do something about st- stopping some of this ruckus that's going on. Hey, let's, let's elect some judges. Who wants the candidate? There, there was none of that. It was God who stepped in and gave them judges. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, this is when we're skipping before that, it says he put Saul in his king. Here it says, and when he had removed him, Saul, um, Daniel, Daniel says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Again, the book of Daniel says, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God, God was done with Saul. And he didn't wait till he, 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 just, he just moved him out. And in verse 22, he raised up David to be their king in Saul's place, of whom he testified and said, I have found David in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. A kid, I mean, literally a, a kid, a nobody kid, a, a kid good with a slingshot, evidently, um, a kid who played the harp and wrote music. God took Saul down, raised David up, because only he, God, can do what no one else can do. He can read the heart. And when he read this kid's heart, He saw not only a potentially great king, but also a king worthy of being the genealogical line for the greatest king ever, Jesus Christ, who would be not only a king, but in verse 23, of this man's offspring, David's, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Ever since Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve and and Satan, God had been promising a savior, so he didn't just show up to start a plan when he sent Jesus to earth. He had he'd been planning it from eternity past, and he promised it over and over and over again, and then he did it. And then finally, verse 29, and when they, that is the Jews and the Romans in Jerusalem, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. They had killed him, put him on a tree. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. See, God's plan was not for Jesus to be a, a dead hero, but a living savior. And he is now the first fruits of all of us who will also be raised from the dead one day, never to die again. Now, like I say, there are 11 more statements like these in this chapter. But now, don't miss what's happening here. Many of the God did this and God did that statements could have been stated without calling attention to God doing them. Example, and the Israelites, in spite of Pharaoh, grew at a phenomenal rate true. Or, and the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan and took ownership of it. True. But Paul chose to narrate these historical events differently, and you got to ask why. And I think it's simply because of this, that history is not primarily a story about man. History is a story about God. Everything is God's story. And this chapter is just simply a microcosm of the the macrocosm. See, God is the eternal CEO of history. He's the eternal owner of the universe. 
And he's the only eternal, indispensable person. And yet, that CEO, that owner, that only indispensable person, is never mentioned on the nightly news. He is never a factor in the equation of historical events in our educational systems. He who is just as personified is never considered in programs of governmental justice and social action. And whenever the ultimate or the main factor of any issue is omitted, the result can be nothing but either inferior at best or tragic at worst. And today, we live with inferior and tragic. So a question for you. When you talk about local, national, inter international happenings, like, like the summit coming up Tuesday in Singapore, how God-saturated is your speech? Let's narrow the scope. What about the history of a person, as in you and me? When you tell the smaller story about you, how God-saturated is it? Frankly, when I listen to me speak, whether I'm talking about good news or bad news, too many times it sounds simply all man-determined, man-caused, man-carried out, man-sustained, man-solved, man-everything. It, it sounds as if God doesn't even exist. I'm guessing and I'm hoping that I'm not alone in that in the room this morning. See, in the process, when I do that, I portray myself as the captain of my destiny, as, as sort of a, a sovereign God in my own little fiefdom. I tend to let the candle burn on the coffin and forget that only God is great. meaning that he is the explanation for and the meaning of every detail of my life. And I mean every detail. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, the mind of man plans his way. Nothing wrong with that. God doesn't tell us not to. But the Lord directs his steps. Uh, 19, 21 in Proverbs, many are the pl plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know, a verse uh, that I and maybe some of you often quote, but I wonder how deeply we really let it sink into our minds is Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? <laughs> Get this. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Do, do, do you hear that? And... Do you believe that? Is his greatness that widespread? And he says, fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. And later he says, you know, he, he knows how many you've got up here, how many hairs. 
Easy job with you, Isaac. Everything is his story. That's what being the sovereign Lord means. That's what being the almighty God means. Thursday afternoon, while writing this message, I was going back and forth between my manuscript, uh, which I had just begun, and, and the, results of, uh, the results of my study and research for the message on, on a different, on a different uh, Word document. And, and somehow I got messed up on the saved documents I was working, and I deleted all of my research. <laughs> Thank you! Thank you! 82 pages! I knew it immediately, and you, you can guess how I responded. But here's how I did respond. Oh, no! I actually said it out loud. Jen wasn't there. Uh, You've got to be kidding me. And then, then the thought hit me. If you really believe what you're going to say in this message, do you realize who you just said you've got to be kidding me to? <laughs> That's reality, folks. I mean, it caused me to laugh out loud. I hope God laughed too. Last week, Jan and I were on our way to see Bill and Ann DeLoach, and I tried to adjust my GPS at a stoplight, not while we were moving, and I lost the directions. And as a result, I missed a left turn. Uh, while I turned around in the driveway down the road, I, I tried to reset the GPS for a little bit, uh, futile. So going back this time to, of course, a right turn, because I had missed the, the, the left turn, uh, the guy turning in front of me lived in the house right on the corner of that. And, and he turned the corner and stopped immediately to turn into his driveway, to turn left into his driveway. And even though I locked on my brakes, I, I hit him with my front tow hook on the truck and put a hole in his bumper and, and pushed him ahead a bit. Uh, footnote, as, as we talked, here's what he said. I've been waiting for that to happen for 20 years. <laughs> Some consolation, but not much. My first thought was, if only I had left the GPS alone, I wouldn't have missed the turn. My second thought was, if I had straight stayed in that driveway five seconds longer, he wouldn't have been in front of me. And then finally, in the third place, I thought about God. Now, if I really believe what I'm preaching here this morning, God in third place? Really? I don't know about you, but I find it easier to turn immediately to God in the more serious as opposed to the less serious things in my life. A few years back, uh, Jan and I were circling the front drive of Northside's Women's Center to visit Amy Zimmerman when she had her first bout with cancer. And right then, as I was circling, we got a call from our doctor, so I pulled over in the circle to take it, and his news was that Jan had thyroid cancer. We stayed parked right there and immediately prayed. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I, I guess you realize at times like that, there is nothing you could have done to control it, so God's the only one to go to at that point. Otherwise, with the accident, you go to yourself and say, oh, I could have done this, I couldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done that, that sort of thing. Now, I don't want to get into whether he causes or allows these things to happen, serious or trivial, because even if he doesn't cause them, but only allows them, he could disallow them, but doesn't. So how is that different in the end from causing them? I mean, it seems like it's on, it's on his plate one way or the other. 
Although in some cases, I'm still responsible, like my accident. And it's a conundrum, I know, I, I know. But one that I'm willing to live with, and here's why. If according to Psalm 139, he actually formed every cell of my being in my mom's womb, and if he has the day of my death on a calendar marked, including the time of the day, why would I then think that I live every day between those two events by chance or by luck? See, I don't want to live life believing that, that things like that research deletion and the car accident and Jan's cancer are the result of chance or coincidence or bad karma or bad luck or luck of the draw or whatever you call it. See, the scriptures teach me to see God in every breath I take, to see everything in my life as God writing my little story perfectly to make it fit with his big story perfectly. It's the same author of detail after detail after detail. And I don't always understand it, what he's doing with me. And very frankly, a lot of times I don't even like it, which I don't think bothers him one bit, at least if I believe the Psalms. But I want to learn to accept it willingly, and because here's why. I know that only good and never bad comes from his hand. That's who who he is. We just sang, God, you're so good. We sang it over. I mean, that is such a simple phrase. It is so theological. I think... uh, The verse is so familiar that I fear we fail to understand its breadth, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Eight centuries ago, a um, theologian wrote, he who knows God rightly knows him everywhere. And I would add, and in everything. Frederick Buechner, in his book, Telling Secrets, writes this. Maybe nothing is more important than that we keep track, you and I, of these stories of who we are and where we have come from and the people we have met along the way. Because it is precisely through these stories and all their particularity, as I have long believed and often said, that God makes himself known to each of us most powerfully and personally. If this is true, it means that to lose track of our stories is to be profoundly impoverished, not only humanly, but also spiritually. The God of biblical faith is a God who started history going in the first place. He is also a God who moment by moment, day by day, continues to act in history always, which means both the history that gets written down in the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, and at the same time, my history and your history, which for the most part doesn't get written down anywhere except in the few lines that may be allotted to us someday on the obituary page. The Exodus, the covenant, the entry into the promised land, Such mighty acts of God as these appear in Scripture, but no less mighty are the acts of God as they appear in our own lives. Would you pray with me? As we pray, listen to the words of a theologian of three centuries ago. 
A general rule for the good use of time is to accustom oneself to live in a continual dependence on the Spirit of God, receiving from moment to moment whatever it pleases Him to give us, referring to Him at once in the doubts which we necessarily run into, turning to Him in the weakness into which goodness slips from exhaustion, Happy the soul which holds itself ceaselessly in the hands of its creator, which never stops saying to itself, in whose hands, great God, should I be better off than in thine? Our great God and loving Father, we say to you this morning, in whose hands should we be better off than in thine. And all of God's children said, Amen. This table we're about to come to um, tells you that God has taken care of the most important detail of your life. You were lost, and he found you. You were hopeless, and he gave you hope. You were far from him, and he drew you near. You were in bondage, and he freed you. You were condemned, and he served your sentence. You were an orphan, and he adopted you. You were dead, and he gave you life. If that's you, this table is for you. If not, it can be for you this morning. Just come as you are. You don't have to clean up your act. Just come and confess your need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for you. I can tell you he will welcome you with open arms.